to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast where we dismantle the media misinformation that floods our news feeds all week long. The media tries to mislead you literally every day. Each episode of this podcast will leave you more equipped to correctly interpret the news and spot their deception quicker than before. This is Luke Taylor, an austere religious scholar, who will be your host in this roundup of the past week of Fake News. I took a few weeks off and I'll explain why. Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, one, I was just feeling a little bit depleted lately. I just had some things going on in my life, in my work, that they left me feeling a little bit strung out. So when I came to the end of the week, which is usually when I would record these episodes, I just I just didn't have the energy by that point to feel like I could deliver a good episode to you guys. <laughs> and frankly, I still don't, but I'm just going to go ahead and give it my best shot today. And then two, a lot of the stuff that's happened in the past few weeks, um, it was really already covered in the last episode. For example, the Russia-Ukraine conflict that's been going on for a while now. And it kind of seems like Russia's attack has um, stalled for the past few weeks. So there's really no new news there. Um, the parental rights bill down in Florida, which has been falsely called the Don't Say Gay Bill, but by all the media, the propaganda media, by the Democrats. Well, that's been signed into law. They're still lying about it. Um, but we already talked about that. You know, I talked about it last time. Nothing's really changed on that um, other than it's been signed into law. But the the propaganda out there is still the same. And every day in the past week, the media has been running stories about Will Smith slapping Chris Rock at the Oscars. And I think part of the reason that's been such a big deal in the news, part of it is just because there's not a lot else to talk about right now as far as new information. So there was one big development this week, and it was regarding the Biden administration. And I felt like it was worth discussing. So we're going to start there. But first, um, to set it up, I want to talk about the leftward drift of a lot of evangelical elites as we work up to what I want to talk about for this week. So I really need, I need to go back a little bit in history to, to set this up properly. You know, strap in. This is going to be uh, this is going to be a long build up here. There has always been a divide in Bible believers between liberal and conservative views. And this goes all the way back to the times of Jesus with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Ever since then, we've always had this divide in, in evangelicalism between liberal and conservative. And so for the past few decades, there was always this block of Christians who voted with the Democrats in elections. And it wasn't most Christians, but there was always this block of ones who were pretty solidly Democrat. They said they did this because they felt like the Democrats cared about the little guy more and so they'd say, you know, I don't support abortion, but but the, but these Christians would make some kind of argument that that Democrats reduce the number of abortions more than Republicans do, and so therefore Democrat um, politicians should be supported if you're against abortion. They'd kind of twist themselves into knots claiming this stuff. Um, apparently, they have no desire to actually see abortion outlawed in this country because they'll just support candidates who are vehemently in support of abortion. And then for basically, you know, every other issue out there when it comes to economics, social issues, so on, these Democrat Christians, they said that voting blue was what Jesus would do because they said Democrats were more biblical when it came to social programs and spending and, and all that stuff. Now, I'm not trying to judge the Christians of the past too harshly for that because I think I think that position was ill-founded, but also I recognize that in the past, there was less of a division between the two parties in this country. There was less of an ideological divide between the two, like, say, the two parties of Democrat and Republican. Um, we were more unified back then than we are today. 
I'm talking about like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, 30 years ago. We were more unified than today. And so um, over the past decade, though, I would say this. The conservative and liberal divide, it has morphed into something else. We're now facing more of a conservative versus progressive divide. Liberals, you know, if there if there are any liberals actually left, and I'll explain why I say that. Liberals, for the most part, have joined with the right. And the left is now ruled by a progressive ideology. Not exactly the same thing as liberal. I mean, quite different from liberalism. Like, what's the difference in the two? Well, liberals were about liberty. Uh, that's why it's liberals. They valued personal freedom. When I was in college 10 to 15 years ago, I, I used to say 10 years ago, and then I'm like, well, wait a minute. I wasn't in college 10 years ago. It was more than, <laughs> I was already graduated 10 years ago. So 15 years ago when I was in college and I was taking communications classes, I was learning media. Even back then, the Democrats were considered more of the party of free speech. That was considered a liberal value. They would talk about how free speech should be protected regardless of how awful some of the speech out there is. We, they just stood for the principle of free speech, even when you disagreed with what someone else was saying. So they often talked about, you know, how terrible it was that there were these hate groups like the Westboro Baptist Church, how, how terrible it is that they exist and that they do these protests and they hold up signs that say terrible things like about how God hates you. And yet they'd say, you know, we, we do need to still respect their right to free speech and to protest the First Amendment because protecting that right for awful speech also protects it for everyone else too. That's why you'd have liberal groups, okay? Democrat, like groups considered Democrat like the ACLU, well, they're still Democrat, but back when they were liberal, they would actually defend even people in like the KKK who would go out and do, this didn't happen a lot, but they'd go out and do a protest or have some kind of demonstration and, and people would try to shut it down because the KKK is terrible and the ACLU would come out and defend them on the basis of free speech. And they'd say, you know what? We got to protect free speech for everybody. So that was a liberal value back in the day, <laughs> not very long ago. When I was in college, back when Barack Obama was elected, and and when he was elected, he said, uh, "Well, he was he was I mean he was even considered more moderate in a lot of ways compared to Democrats today." And I don't actually think he was moderate. I think he was secretly super progressive, but he kept that under wraps. But I mean, when he was elected, he was more of a moderate guy. He would be considered a liberal guy in favor of things like free speech. I mean, he was back then. He was against gay marriage. I think he was lying about that too. But I mean, he would. Publicly, he was against gay marriage, and he got elected on that basis. Because as far back as 2008, you couldn't be elected president if you were in favor of gay marriage. But as we've seen, that was, what, 15 years ago? Less than that? And the society has shifted so much since then. So just to, go, to stay in that realm, though, of like 2008 to 2012, back when I was in college. I started college in 2006, but I graduated in 11. Back during that time, though, there was a big shift in... I'd say the Democratic Party, they've switched from a form of liberalism to more of a progressive ideology, okay? So liberalism was in favor of personal rights, free speech, the First Amendment. You know, when, when there would be these terrible people who'd go out, there, this used to be a thing back then, that there were these people who'd go out and protest military funerals. If a soldier died and they were holding a funeral for the soldier, there were these horrible people who would go to all these military funerals and they'd stand far back, but they would hold up signs that said evil things like, thank God for another dead soldier. 
So these were absolutely deplorable people. And yet back when I was in college, we would acknowledge that they had a right to peaceably assemble. That is in the First Amendment. They have a right to do that, even if what they're doing is horrible, terrible, and we 100% disagree with it, and we think they're just the worst people out there to protest a military funeral. But yet, we recognized that you got to protect the free speech amendment. You got you to enforce that for everybody, not just the, the speech that you agree with, not just the speech you like. You have to allow it for everybody. So nobody I went to college with, well, maybe they would have, but nobody, I, th- I don't think anyone I went to college with would have went out and burned an American flag, especially not back then. But we recognized it as a form of free speech that should be protected, even if we disagreed with it, okay? That, that was considered a liberal position. Yes, you, you know, conservatives back then would have said, oh yeah, you can, you sh- we should ban burning the flag. You can't desecrate the flag. They wanted to ban it. And liberals said, hey, it's a free speech principle. It's a peaceful protest. Even if we don't like someone burning American flags, it is a First Amendment protected form of speech. Back then, I would have considered myself a liberal on things like that. That I was kind of a free speech absolutist. I would say I still am, as far as that goes. I think people people should have a right to talk, even whenever we don't agree with what they're saying. Okay, so back then, as far as speech goes, I would have been considered liberal on that. I would have been. I mean, I considered myself in college. I was. I was a very conservative person, but I would have said I was liberal on that matter of free speech, and and I would have considered myself more liberal on some other things too, like immigration. But but generally I was I've always been a very conservative person. Generally almost always voted Republican. So and, and I still am today. As but as far as what liberals were saying back then, I agreed with what they were saying back then. Today the liberal point of view has really become more of the conservative one though. This is what I'm talking about is there's been a shift. A progressive view has taken control of what was previously the liberal left. I could no longer really call them liberal in the sense of what the word liberal means. They've become progressive. Let me explain what progressivism is. Progressivism does not believe in free speech. Progressivism is a totalitarian philosophy that wants to squash free speech. Progressivism doesn't believe that the people that they disagree with should have a right to peaceably assemble and say what they want. Progressivism would be happy to ban the protests that they don't agree with. When it comes to protests that they do agree with, though, like Black Lives Matter, they are fine with fiery fiery and not peaceful whatsoever protests when it comes to that. They're fine with that, but they would want to stop any, they'd shut down a protest that's about something they disagree with. So that's not a liberal value. Liberalism is about personal liberty, personal freedom, but modern progressivism would say that the government can enforce whatever it wants. It can it can enforce that you get a shot in order to have a job, a shot of a vaccine that's not even a year old, for a sickness that's not even two years old. And progressivism would say, yep, we can force you to get that, to have a job against your will. So today, we no longer have a conservative versus liberal divide in this country. What we actually have is a conservative versus progressivism divide. The difference in a biblical worldview, and an anti-biblical worldview, as far as it comes to politics, it has never been starker in this country. It has ne- except maybe since the Civil War, but it's never been more evident which political party is closer to the teachings of the Bible and which party is further. It's never been more clear.
Okay, and I'm not saying everything about Republicans and their platform is perfectly in line with the Bible. Not saying that. I'm saying as far as which party is closer, though, to the teachings of the Bible and which party is more opposed and hates the teachings of the Bible, that has never been more clear than it is today. Here's the big one. I kind of alluded to it before. The Democrat Party is pro-baby killing. Not only that, it is pro-homosexuality in every possible sense of the word. It's in favor of segregating people on the basis of race. It's in favor of this modern gender ideology, which says that there are more than two genders, that you can change your God-given gender, that you can identify as whatever you want, even if it's not human. And it's in favor of socialism, which as I've, I, on my other podcast, I talked about this, the Cross References podcast, socialism is rooted in greed, jealousy, and theft. It is not a compatible worldview with the Bible. And as we'll talk about it, it also believes that the government, talking about progressivism, they also believe that the government has a right to educate your children and not you. They believe they have rights that overrule the parents on what children are taught in schools, your kids. That is the, the current progressive party right now. That is the current Democratic Party platform. So I am not saying that God is a Republican, but Satan is definitely a Democrat. And I know when I say that, that's a kind of an audacious thing to say. By the way, our email for this podcast, it's fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. So if you don't like what I said, that's where you can send your hate mail. God is not a Republican, but Satan is definitely a Democrat. And I want to take that a step further. If we had elected Satan as president, I think he would actually be governing more moderately than the Biden administration has. (laughs) I'll explain why. I think that Joe Biden has gone more extreme far left than even Satan would have. Now, why do I say that? Because because at least Satan knows how to be subtle. Okay? Satan would be slipping in all kinds of stuff under the radar. Right? Satan, the Bible says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Satan fools people into thinking that he has good intentions. Satan would at least pretend that he's trying to fix the economy or secure the border or that he's not coming after your kids, because Satan's actually a good liar. On the other hand, Joe Biden and the current Democratic Party, they're totally out in the open about what they're doing. They think everything that they think, it's clear, it's undeniable. They're not even trying to hide it. They have chosen this moment to make it totally clear that they are on the side of trying to control your children, of trying to corrupt your children, trying to make them LGBT. They're totally clear about how they have an open border policy about how they're trying to remake our economy into socialism, about inciting racial hatred publicly on the news every day. Their politicians politicians go out every day and try to incite racial hatred. They're totally open about hiring jobs on the basis of race and gender. The Black Lives Matter riots of 2020, they caused billions of dollars in damage. They caused dozens of deaths. And yet for months on end, It was the Democrat Party that were openly trying to keep it going. They were saying we need to keep people out there, even though stuff's being burned down and people are dying. They were trying to keep those riots going. They are 100% open about all of this. Joe Biden says, I'm going to sign an executive order that that 100 million people in this workforce have to go get a vaccine or else they lose their job. And I know it's not legal to do that, but I'm just going to do it anyway. He would say that. I mean, you can't get much more blunt than that. He'd say, I know it's not legal, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
He's not trying to hide it, guys. They have no regard for the law, for the Constitution. They celebrate abortion. They can't define what a man or a woman is. We'll talk about that. They endorse every form of sexual deviancy known to man. So the difference in progressivism and the Bible, it could not be more stark. The side that openly promotes evil, it could not be more clear. It is the Democrat Party. It is progressivism. And I truly believe that Joe Biden and, and the current Democratic Party that's running, that, that I believe that they are running this government to the left faster than even Satan would dare to try. Again, fiery but peaceful at gmail.com. So while the divide in the parties, it has never been more clear, okay? While the difference has never been more stark, here's also what I'm witnessing today. There are more so-called Christians than ever before who are joining the cause of the Democrat Party. They are promoting progressive values. And when Democrats do something that's blatantly anti-biblical, they make excuses for it about why it's not that big a deal, that Democrats aren't seriously going to do that. Why are so many Christians, or again, what I'd say so-called Christians, why are they embracing progressivism? I think part of it is a reaction to Donald Trump. For some reason, there's this group of Christians. I don't want to say for some reason. He gave him a lot of reasons to dislike. <laughs> Donald Trump's flaw, his fatal flaw, is that he gives people a lot of reasons to dislike him. If you, if you are, what if you are inclined whatsoever to find something about Donald Trump you won't like, you will find ten things. It's not that hard. He made it easy to, to hate him, and they hated Donald Trump. They don't want to be associated with Trump whatsoever because to be associated with Trump right now. And in 2016, 2015, all through his presidency, it caused such a lack of social standing in the modern world. So these people want to disassociate from Trump as much as possible. And in order to do that, they've embraced a lot of mantras of the left. Like they, they pretend or they actually get deceived into believing that the left in this country is more true to God's teachings than the right is. And now we see what Satan has been up to for the past couple of years. Because like I said before, he masquerades as an angel of light. And here I thought he was masquerading as the Speaker of the House for the past few years. But no, he masquerades as an angel of light. Satan tells you there's no danger. He lulls you to sleep. He twists your mind until you're actually voting for candidates who promote sexual immorality and abortion. Okay, whatever lie you need to tell yourself to vote for a pro-abortion party and still call yourself a Christian, Satan will feed that lie to you. Am I saying that this means all Republicans are actually saints? Absolutely not. If you don't feel like a Republican has earned your vote, you have no obligation to give it to him or her. Just because you're a Christian, that means jack squat as far as an obligation to vote for a Republican. Okay, it's their job to earn your vote. It's their job to, to present themselves as a candidate of integrity and character and a dedication to your values. And if they fail to do that, that's on them. That's not on you. That's on them. So if you felt like a Republican candidate's character, it was too shoddy to be worth voting for, I have no grudge against you on that. What I can't understand, though, is why a Christian would then vote for the Democrats instead. Okay? I can understand the case to not vote Republican sometimes. I can sympathize with it. There's Republicans I have decided not to vote for in the past. I didn't vote for Todd Akin in Missouri in 2012. I didn't vote for Donald Trump in 2016. 
I can totally understand that. But it makes no logical sense to instead vote for a Democrat if you're a Christian. Because Democrats are worse in every way. Okay, from a biblical mindset, I'm not going to just shrug my shoulders here and pretend that both sides are equal and they just have a different area of focus. No. One side hates the Bible and hates godliness. The other side at least pretends to like it most of the time. (laughs) But there's one side who absolutely hates it. Okay, I'm not saying you have to vote Republican. But if the Republicans aren't good enough for you, there is no biblical argument that you should instead vote for a Democrat. Okay? Unless that Democrat is just not behaving like a Democrat. Okay? Like in in 2010, I did vote for a Democrat for a congressional seat. Scott Eckersley was running in Missouri. Scott Eckersley was anti-gay marriage. He was anti-abortion. And the Republican candidate that year was a horrible option. It was Billy Long. Now, I've and I've personally met and interviewed Billy Long back when it, it was back when I worked in newspaper. I was working in newspaper when he ran for the first time. And I found him to be frankly completely out of touch and ridiculous. I found him sleazy. I think that was the only time I've I've ever voted for a Democrat for a major office was that year for Scott Eckersley. Because I found the Democrat that year to actually be more biblical than the Republican who was running in that race. But I don't think I'd ever find one like that today because we have an entirely different Democrat party party than we used to. It's not liberal anymore. That was 2010. That was 12 years ago. We have a different Democratic party today than we used to. It's not liberal. It's progressive. All that was really my introduction. That brings us to today. (laughs) Or rather to 2020. Okay, so let's go back to late 2020. That was the election year. Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. A group of Christians... Or again, I would probably say so-called Christians. A group of Christians endorsed Joe Biden for president. Now, how can a Christian vote for someone whose platform is so against the word of God, against their own Bible? How could they do that? And let me tell you what what this group was. They called themselves Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. That was the name of their group, organization, whatever. Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Talk about an oxymoron. Emphasis on the moron. So they they released this statement right before the 2020 election wrapped up. This is what pro-life evangelicals for Biden said. They said, as pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the De- because he was running back then. He wasn't president yet. We disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion. But we believe a biblical-shaped commitment to the sanctity of human life compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end. And it continues, many things that good political decisions could change, destroy persons created in the image of God, and violate the sanctity of human life. Poverty kills millions every year. So does lack of health care and smoking. Racism kills. Unless we make major changes, devastating climate change will kill tens of millions. Poverty, lack of accessible health care services, smoking, racism, and climate change are all pro-life issues. (laughs) So this was written by a team of left-leaning so-called Christians. They released this back towards the end of 2020 to try to give Christians an excuse to jump off the Donald Trump bandwagon and vote for for Joe Biden. A couple of the people who signed this were prominent names. One of them was social activist Ron Sider. Now, full disclosure, not that I don't have like a relationship with 
Ron Sider whatsoever. I was just going to say, I've interviewed Ron Sider before on the radio. He had written this book about um, the church and politics. This was back in like 2012. And I had him on my radio show back then for a a 10-minute interview. And he actually gave me 20 minutes. He was incredibly kind and gracious with his time. And he was like a professor at that time, I I think. Um, Now, I remember we got some hate at the radio station where I worked for... um, for airing that interview, we, we, were, we were accused of doing the Democrats' bidding. But frankly, I felt like Ron Sider, I felt like he made some good points for his position back then. I mean, and like I said before, back then, the left was more liberal than progressive. And he would probably be considered on the left back then and, and still so today. So it was a bit more reasonable as a left-leaning Christian, even, even 10 years ago, you know, unlike today, it was a bit more reasonable to be a left-leaning Christian. Now, we took some flack, like I said, but I really appreciated his time. I found him to be really kind. I mean, I think he was completely wrong about this letter that I just read, but but I found him to be a really kind person. Ron Sider said at the time that this letter came out, he said, I urge everyone, especially evangelicals, to support Joe Biden as president. Poverty, racism, lack of health care, and climate change are all pro-life issues. On those and many other issues, Biden is much closer to Trump than what biblical values demand. That's what Ron Sider said. It's absolutely ludicrous. He does not have to vote for Trump. That's fine. I understand. But his principles are all out of whack if he says Trump is a danger, but that Biden is more biblical. That does not make sense. He's not seeing clearly. And he's going to admit that later. Okay. (laughs) So if you're arguing with me on that, he admits this later, as we'll see. But first, uh, first I want to talk about one more person who signed this letter, uh, Dr. Richard, I'm not sure if I'll say his name right, Richard Mwau, okay? I apologize if I'm not saying his name. His last name is spelled M-O-U-W. And I think he's like the main signer of this letter. I- I'm assuming he's responsible the most for drafting the letter, although I don't know that for sure. It's signed by a lot of people. But Dr. Richard Mwau, uh, he's President Emeritus at Fuller Seminary. Now, and another disclosure here, um, I've also talked with Dr. Wow on the radio. He also wrote a book years ago. And this, this book was about um, witnessing to Mormons. And, and if, you're, you know, if you're listening and you don't know what that means, that's Christian lingo for trying to convert someone. We, we, talking to someone about the Christian faith, we call it witnessing. So Dr. Wow wrote a book about, I think it was called Talking with Mormons. And I interviewed him on the radio. And my show, it was a Christian radio show just about every day. I would do a 10-minute interview with a Christian author of a book, and th- that's how I got a chance to talk with Ron Sider and also Dr. Moyle. And I, I've interviewed so many authors. Uh, you know, I don't even remember if I'm saying his name right. I know I talked to him, but I pre-recorded these author interviews. I didn't do them live. I pre-recorded them like a few days before, and, and then um, we aired them later on. So after doing the interview with Dr. Richard, I, I actually ended up not even airing his interview after I talked to him. And why is that? Well, so toward the end of the interview, I asked him if he believed that Mormons went to heaven, like when they died. And I figured this was a pretty softball question. Like, I felt kind of stupid even asking it, because after all, this guy wrote a book about evangelism, evangelizing Mormons. So obviously, if he did that, he's acknowledging, right, that they, they worship a different Jesus than traditional Christianity. So if he believed that they went to heaven, 
why bother writing a book about evangelizing Mormons in the first place, right? But I asked the question because I thought it was just a softball, easy question. And here's the interesting thing, though. After I asked it, he really waffled on it. Now, I really hate it when people dodge questions because to me, when someone's dodging questions, it just turns a conversation into a waste of time. And if someone asks or if someone answers a question, but they dodge it and they won't give like a simple, direct answer to a simple, direct question, frankly, I I just don't have much time for you. So I asked Dr. Richard Wow about whether whether Mormons go to heaven and he would not give a straight answer on this. He was like, well, and then he just went into a story about how he knew this Mormon guy one time and this Mormon sang the same hymns that he sang. And they were close friends, and he had talked to this friend about the gospel, and then that Mormon guy died, and he had never renounced Mormonism, but but Dr. Morrell believes that that man's probably in heaven today. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not really an answer to the, to the question. It's a huge red flag to me whenever you ask someone a question, and they just respond with a long story, and they won't give a direct answer. So I ended up not, not even airing his interview. Because I was like, okay, the guy who wrote the book on evangelizing Mormons, apparently he doesn't really believe they need to be evangelized if, if he thinks they can go to heaven anyway. So I didn't air it. And I kind of forgot about the guy after that. And um, and then Trump became president. And Dr. Moyle, he started appearing in the news again as one of the prominent Christian critics of Donald Trump. I mean, such a strong critic that, you know, like I said, he and Ron Sider and a bunch of other Christian leaders, they crafted an organization that endorsed Joe Biden for president. And these were not self-described progressive Christians. They would call themselves pro-life Christians. So here's the question. How does a pro-life Christian justify a vote for Joe Biden? Well, what they did was they created an organization called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. They claim that more lives will be saved by Joe Biden being president than if Trump is. They claim that the environment and poverty are also pro-life issues. Let me just read this again, okay? This is what they said in their statement. Racism kills. Unless we make major changes, devastating climate change will kill tens of millions. Poverty, lack of accessible healthcare services, smoking, racism, and climate change are all pro-life issues. That's what it says. I mean, smoking. What does Joe Biden have to do about smoking? Was Donald Trump pro-smoking? Trump doesn't even drink. So I don't, what in the world does smoking have to do with being Republican or Democrat? I have never heard of a political party taking a position on smoking in my entire life that I can remember. Okay. So when these so-called pro-life, so-called Christians, when they want to get Joe Biden elected, what did they go to? They say in their statement, you know, well, yeah, abortion is bad, but you know what else is bad? Smoking. This is their justification. (laughs) I want to know what these people were smoking. You know, on that note, I will make an addendum to this because as I was preparing my broadcast today, my phone lit up and it was breaking news from the House of Representatives. So the Democrat controlled House just voted to legalize marijuana. Okay, so when we finally do have a public policy that promotes smoking, it's brought to you by the Democrats. Okay, so good job, Ron Sider and Dr. Mwao and all you guys who got so many Democrats elected. 
Good job. You finally got something on the ballot about smoking. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't think that makes it marijuana legal everywhere because it has to go through the Senate and the president would have to sign off on it. So I don't know if it'll even go that far. But but the House of Representatives has voted to legalize marijuana, to decriminalize it. Okay, so back to the letter that these people wrote. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden. They also cited racism. Okay, they said this in the letter. Racism kills. My question is, who is racism killing? Like, are they referring here to the hoax that police are gunning down a bunch of black men in the streets? Okay, did, there's been like less than 10 or 20 unarmed black men shot by police each year for the past several years. Okay, statistically, it's a non-issue that black men are getting gunned down by, by police. Statistically, that is a non-issue. You Compare that to the 3,000 babies who are killed by abortion every day. And these guys are talking about how racism is killing black people. I know whatever they think, however they're coming up with their calculations, it's not 3,000 a day, except for the black babies who are aborted. So black people being shot by cops, statistically, that's a non-issue. I'm not saying it never happens. And I'm not saying every time it happens that it's unjustified. Just because someone's unarmed with a gun, like sometimes they're attacking a cop, punching a cop, going for a knife or something like that, and then they get shot. So anyway, statistically, it's a non-issue. The media, though, it picks up the few times where it happens, and they make a big deal about it. They make it look like a big problem when it's not. It's not an actual problem. The, the Black Lives Matter riots were all based on this. But those riots got more people killed than police shootings of unarmed, people, of unarmed black people did back in 2020. Black Lives Matter riots got more people killed than the police were. Black Lives Matter does not actually care about black lives, obviously. They just want to get Democrats elected. It's just another hoax that Christians fell for, or so-called Christians, because nothing would save more black lives each year than ending abortion. But there are so-called Christians out there. I'm just going to say they're so-called Christians. I hate to even call them Christians. There are so-called Christians out there who would rather support Joe Biden and Black Lives Matter instead of doing something that would actually save the most black lives. And of course, Joe Biden, from day one, he didn't actually do anything to restrict abortion. As far as from day one, ever since, well, his whole life probably, but ever since being president, he hasn't done anything to restrict abortion. In fact, right after he got into office, he signed a spending package of $1.9 trillion, and he did not include the Hyde Amendment in it. The Hyde Amendment states that the government can't use the budget money to fund abortions. And that's been a longstanding thing in American life. Biden dropped it as soon as he got into office. So thanks to these pro-life evangelicals for Biden, because now, for the first time ever, our tax dollars are paying for abortions. Because you got Biden elected. Good job, guys. And they acknowledged this when I said earlier, they'll acknowledge that they were wrong. Well, right after Biden gets into office, a few months later, they release a statement we are very disappointed about the COVID-19 relief package's exclusion of the Hyde Amendment, a long-standing bipartisan policy that prevents taxpayer funding for abortion. We are even more upset that the Biden administration is supporting this bill. <laughs> what they think was going to happen. They knew. As pro-life leaders in the evangelical community, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. No one who's pro-life looks at these guys as leaders in their community when they said to vote for Joe Biden. 
we publicly supported President Biden's candidacy with the understanding <laughs> that there would be engagement with us on the issue of abortion, and particularly the Hyde Amendment. We feel used and betrayed. That's what they said. We feel used and betrayed. And we have no intention of simply watching these kinds of efforts happen from the sidelines. Used and betrayed. When they say that, they're lying. They're trying to act like Biden was the bad guy. Well, he is, but they are the bad guys. Biden even said before he got elected that he wanted to get rid of the Hyde Amendment. Okay, June 6th, 2019. I'm reading right from the New York Times, as they said on June 6th of 2019. After two days of intense criticism, Joseph R. Biden Jr. reversed himself Thursday night on one of the issues most important to Democratic voters, saying he no longer supports a measure that bans federal funding for most abortions. He said as far back as like about a year and a half before the election, he was against the Hyde Amendment. And pro-life evangelicals for Biden want to pretend that he used and betrayed them. No, pro-life evangelicals for Biden used and betrayed you. They lied to Christians and told Christians that if they voted for Biden, that he would lower the amount of abortions happening. It's a straight up lie. This past week, he nominated another judge to the Supreme Court who said she would protect abortion. And pro-life evangelicals for Biden, they want to claim that Biden stabbed them in the back. He did exactly what he said he would do. And then this week, the Biden administration has announced that they support surgeries for children to try to change their biological sex. Transgender surgery. Wait, by the way, no surgery can actually change your sex. The surgery is a lie. The Biden administration, though, supports that for children. I mean, that is mutilation. That's demonic, okay? You hear about these countries sometimes and they do genital mutilation in children. It's like some bizarre practice. I find it downright demonic. I mean, I say it's straight from hell. But it's also endorsed by the current presidential administration here in America. Let me read this report from Fox News. President Biden's administration has released a series of documents encouraging gender reassignment surgery and hormone treatments for minors. The Department of Health and Human Services Office of Population Affairs released a document Thursday titled Gender Affirming Care and Young People. The same day, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network, another subset of the HHS, released a parallel document titled Gender Affirming Care is Trauma-Informed Care. The HHS documents describe what it calls appropriate treatments for transgender adolescents, including top surgery to create male typical chest shape or enhanced breasts, and bottom surgery, surgery on genitals or reproductive organs, facial feminization, and other procedures. Okay? And by the way, I went and looked, and these documents are legit. I know I said it's from Fox News. If you don't like what Fox News has to say, I don't like Fox News much either, frankly, but if you don't like what they have to say, I'll just mention, um, I went and looked at this on my own too. The Health and Human Services Department literally did release these documents, literally saying that they support transgender surgeries, gender reassignment surgeries on children. Now, listen, when, when it's mentioned top and bottom surgery there, that's top surgery is like when a woman has her breasts cut off or for a man, bottom surgery is like when a man has his genitals cut off. 
when a woman has her skin taken off one part of her body so a plastic surgeon can make it into a fake male genitals and splice it onto her private parts. When, when all that stuff goes on, by the way, I'd say that is mental illness. If somebody wants that, it's mental illness. If there's a sick doctor out there willing to do that to somebody, that is he's mentally ill too. I'm not going to apologize for saying that, by the way. Fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. This stuff is mental illness. If somebody wants that done to themselves, they are mentally ill. And many times people do this and they have regret afterwards. And if they're happy with it, if they're happy that was done, <laughs> further example of mental illness, okay? It is deep mental illness to be desiring to permanently alter your body in this way. And it's permanent, guys. Once you do it, it there's no going back. I don't think the surgeries like this should even be legal for anyone, not even adults. Mutilating healthy bodies because they have a problem that's in their brain, that should not be legal. Like about a decade ago, um, Mel Gibson made this movie. It was called The Beaver. It was about a man. He had some kind of mental condition where he wanted to keep a puppet of a beaver on his hand at all times. Like he would never take this puppet off. I think he was like estranged from his family or something. And the beaver puppet was how he dealt with his grief. It's been a while since I saw the movie, but he, he has like so this mental snap and he obsesses over this puppet puppet and he will not take it off. And he's always talking to the puppet and it talks to him. And anyway, he has a mental breakdown at the end of the movie. This is really the only part of the movie I remember. <laughs> he finally wants to take the beaver puppet off his hand, but he can't bring himself to do it. So at the end of the movie, he ends up cutting off his arm. Now, it's a sad, tragic conclusion to his story. He survives at the end of the movie. He just has one arm. That's what it, it took for him to finally have peace in his life. He had to cut his own arm off. He could never deal with his grief for his mental illness properly, so he ends up hacking off part of his own body. I find that a really sad and tragic ending to the movie. I would think, though, that modern-day progressives, they might celebrate that ending. They might call that a heartwarming and sweet conclusion. But to sane people, damaging your physical body because you have a psychological problem in your brain, that's not a happy ending to the story. Progressives, on the other hand, they not only agree with that idea, they want to do it to kids, too. The Biden administration has announced that this week. Uh, Thursday was like Trans Awareness Day or Trans Spotlight Day, something like that. So the Biden administration had all this transgender stuff released that day. And they put this out. And they took a position on transgender life-altering permanent surgeries on minors. And they're in favor of it. They want to take children who are extremely impressionable, children who can't even fathom long-term decision-making, who have no concept of how this would affect the rest of their lives, children who can be easily swayed into and out of decisions like this. And the Biden administration says they promote doing life-altering sex change surgeries on them. The Biden administration's official position is that this is a good thing for society. Here's my question to you. Is that pro-life? I'm asking the pro-life evangelicals for Biden. They're the ones who supported this nonsense. Well, I mean, it's not just nonsense. It's, it's pure, plain evil. It's the purest form of evil, mutilating the bodies of children. 
that is what they voted for. That is what they tried to influence other Christians to vote for. Guys, remember what I said about Satan. At least Satan would be tricky about what he wants to do, right? At least Satan is deceptive. So, I mean, if you got deceived into following Satan, you could at least claim, well, hey, I was deceived, okay? You could at least claim that. You were dumb to still trust him, he, but he's a, he does deceive people. That's his job. But Joe Biden, he was as straightforward as can be about his intentions. I mean, Joe Biden was never hiding the ball, okay? Joe Biden is like, I'm driving the car off the cliff. If you put me in the driver's seat, I'm driving it off the cliff. Both feet on the gas. Here we go. And the pro-life evangelicals for Biden, they're like, guys, he doesn't mean it. Let him drive. It's his turn. Trump's too dangerous to drive. He tweets while he drives. But you can trust Biden to stay on the road. And then Biden gets elected and it's like, okay, here we go. Off the cliff. I mean, Biden's at least been consistent. He's at least been honest, which is more than we can say for the pro-life evangelicals for Biden. You know, at least if the devil was driving, we would say, well, well, he told me he would stay between the yellow lines because the devil lies. But with Biden, it's like he was telling us the whole time he was going to drive off the cliff. He told us exactly what he wanted to do. And now he's doing it. Pro-life evangelicals for Biden, they knew what was going to happen. We knew what was going to happen. The only people who were actually fooled were the so-called Christians who fell for that lie. And what does pro-life evangelicals for Biden, what do they say today? What do they have to say for themselves? Now that the Biden administration's, you know, endorsing sex change operations, which are a lie because you can't change your sex, that they're endorsing the mutilation of children, sex change operations on healthy minor bodies. What does pro-life evangelical evangelicals for Biden have to say about that? They have absolutely nothing to say because their organization is no more. They took their website down. Their past statements are gone. Scrubbed from the internet. They did their job. They got their boy Biden elected. I mean, if they had any sense of shame or integrity, they would disappear from the public scene entirely because they deceived who knows how many people. They deceived them into voting for someone who now endorses the permanent mutilation of children. And they claim that they didn't see it coming. They're like, well, this isn't what we voted for. If they didn't realize that Joe Biden would govern this far to the left, that they didn't believe he was going to do all this stuff that he said he would do, you know, they can claim that. But one of two things, they were either easily duped or they actually wanted this. Either they are easily deceived Christians who threw away their reputations by trusting a politician who's been lying to the public for the past 50 years, either that or they aren't actually Christians at all. And that's for God to judge, but I would not want to be standing in their shoes when he does. Okay, well, I spent a long, long time on that first story, so <laughs> the timestamps on this program they're gonna be like <laughs> the first story got 45 minutes and then I'll try to move through these other ones a lot quicker okay 
Uh, I mean, I'm still feeling pretty good. I still got a lot of energy here today, but um, the, I know I've, <laughs> I just went through a very long rant right there without stopping. So hope you enjoyed it. Um, I guess you did if you're still listening. So let's go through a few other things. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you heard this week, but prominent actor Bruce Willis, he announced that he's retiring from acting. Um, sadly, he announced that he has aphasia. That's a condition that I was looking up a little bit on it. It usually results from a stroke. No idea if Bruce Willis had a stroke. He's um, 67, so it seems a little young for... I guess strokes can happen anytime. I don't know. But aphasia, I read that it affects the speech and the language area of your brain. It's a form of mental deterioration. It causes you to not be able to communicate. So apparently Willis has had some trouble acting lately because he can't remember his lines anymore. So very sorry to hear about that. Willis, um, of course, he's super famous for the Die Hard franchise. It's a series of action films that are centered around killing terrorists, none of which are Christmas movies, by the way. Um, but anyway, all the best to him. And uh, I guess you, maybe it's something you don't really get better from. But um, hopefully he's able to just live a peaceful life from this point. Uh, another, I just kind of thought of that because I was going to talk about some movie stuff for a minute. And I kind of thought of the deal with Bruce Willis. Uh, and also, you might have heard about the situation with Will Smith, right? <laughs> it's impossible that you didn't hear about that because it's been in the news every day for the past week ever since the Oscars happened, okay? If not for that, we wouldn't even know the Oscars happened because so few people care about the Oscars anymore. I do not care about the Oscars anymore. I will say that I used to. Um, ever since I was like 13 or 14, I really loved staying up to watch the Oscars I remember like being a kid, I watched the one with Billy, Billy Crystal was hosting and uh, it was, he did these skits that were so funny and it was just kind of a fun night to watch the, I didn't care about all the fashion stuff they would do before the Oscars, but the show itself was pretty entertaining. And I like, I remember I was so young, my parents made me go to bed. Like I had, I had a bedtime at nine or 10. So they made me go to bed. I wasn't able to see who won the Oscars. And like, I think that your Lord of the Rings won everything. So anyway, I always enjoyed watching the Oscars up until about 2015, okay? And I'll kind of explain what changed around then. I mean, I liked watching... here. The thing with the Oscars was that, you know, you don't always... There's 100 movies that come out every year, or 200, 300, however many. And you don't really know which ones are the best. Um, with the Oscars, when movies are nominated for Best Picture, it at least gives you an indication of how good the movie is going to be. Um... Like, if a movie gets on the top 10 nominations for best movie of the year, yeah, you at least know it's probably a pretty good movie, a movie worth watching. So I like to kind of watch the Oscars and know what was what was good movies that were out, you know, here and there. And then up until 2015, things had really started to change with the Oscars. So I remember, I think that was the year that Leonardo DiCaprio won for The Revenant. And, you know, he would, it was kind of funny because Leo would, would try to win the Oscars like every year. It was almost like a recurring joke for like over a decade. He was always in these dramatic movies, giving it his all, trying so hard. And he just, someone always beat him every year, you know, and, and he would do a great job. He did movies like The Aviator and Shutter Island and Inception and, and so many, so many great jobs acting in a lot of movies. But he never clinched that bet, best actor win. Okay, until 2015, I think it was, and he finally won. He finally got that Best Actor Oscar. 
right after doing this, he gets up there on stage and he makes a speech about climate change. Making the Revenant was about man's relationship to the natural world, a world that we collectively felt in 2015 as the hottest year in recorded history. Our production needed to move to the southern tip of this planet just to be able to find snow. Climate change is real. It is happening right now. It is the most urgent threat facing our entire species. And when he did that, I was just so disappointed. I know he's, you know, he's a liberal or progressive. He's a he's a left-wing actor like all the actors in Hollywood and they are all about social causes that are left-leaning and all that. But here was someone that I was rooting for for years. I was happy to see him finally win and he gets up there and what does he do? He gets up there to talk about climate change and to push this left-wing propaganda about climate change. This guy who flies all over the world in his airplanes. And anyway, it was just a big slap in the face. And I, you know, they had kind of been becoming less credible over the past few years. There was the year that two movies came out. One of them was 12 Years a Slave and one of them was Gravity. I think Gravity is one of the greatest films ever made, period. Um, it's the one, it's by Alfonso Cuaron, I think. And he has Sandra Bullock trying to survive the, in space for like 100 minutes. I mean, it's like an incredibly gripping 100 minutes, beautiful music beautiful cinematography. It looks like they filmed it in space. It's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's it's almost what you'd probably call a thriller more than anything else. we got some incredible dramatic moments. Anyway, technical achievement that people still look back on and are like, yeah, that was on pretty much a perfectly made movie. What did they give the Oscar to that year? 12 Years a Slave. And that's a movie about slavery. And it's not a bad movie or anything, but it's the kind of movie that people just forgot about. You know, they forgot about it right after because it won because of being about slavery and the plight of, bag of black people and making white people feel sad about it and white guilt and all that stuff. And that just became this game that the, the Oscars would play each year is pick the movie that had a character who was a minority of some kind, you know, a black person. It, 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 basically, there's like, Five or six intersectional categories. If you make a movie about a black person, a person with some kind of disability, uh, a person who's poor, a person who's gay or transgender or or some other kind of thing. And if you can have a movie that can strike multiple, check multiple boxes there, if you can check multiple boxes, you have a really good shot of winning the Oscar. And each year, it's just some left-wing cause movie um, that... Like the one that won for this past year is a movie about deaf people. You know, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm sure it's a very good movie. But they just always pick particular types of movies to win the Oscar. Um, and it's always something, it's almost always something about race anymore. 12 Years a Slave won. And I remember Entertainment Weekly did this interview with some of the Academy voters. It was anonymous, so we don't know who they are. And they said, what did you vote for for Best Picture? And there were at least three of them who said that they voted for 12 Years a Slave and they hadn't even watched the movie. They just said, yeah, I thought that one looked like the one that should win this year. They didn't even watch the film. And they gave it the Oscar for Best Picture because it looked like the kind of movie that they wanted to promote. And I'm not saying 12 Years a Slave is a bad movie, but no one talks about it anymore. It didn't make, it didn't make a big impact. It didn't leave a big footprint. Okay, well, uh, in 2010, my, one of my top favorite movies of all time came out. The Social Network, okay? It's like my number one or number two favorite movie. 
And they ended up giving the Best Picture Award that year to The King's Speech. Now, I think The King's Speech is also an incredible movie. I, I love that movie. But it's not half as good as The Social Network. And to this day, people still quote from The Social Network. It made a big cultural footprint. I mean, it was like, and it's just such a fun movie. Great script, great directing, great story, relevant story to modern times. The King's Speech was about the King of England overcoming a speech impediment. And it's also a really, really good movie. But they gave the Oscar that year to the King's Speech because it was about the disability thing. They just always have a particular type of movie that they want to promote. And usually it's something about race. Um, but Or it could be about disabilities, uh, something gay. That When Moonlight won in 2018, you know, almost no one saw Moonlight. But it was a movie about a poor, black, gay teenager and so it checked all the boxes and it, you know, it, it, it ends up winning the Oscar. So it's just, it's gotten very tiring. It's gotten very political. It's gotten, the, the stars get up each year and make these, uh, the, to talk about how they hate Donald Trump and hate half of America. And, but thanks for this award. You know, that's what I want to spend my time doing. Or Leonardo DiCaprio, DiCaprio, DiCaprio getting up. He's like, climate change is real. That's, you know, people were rooting for you for years, man. And that's what you spend your Oscar speech doing, getting up to talk about global warming and climate change and all that. Huge slap in the face. Well, speaking of slaps into the faces, <laughs> the Oscars had an even more famous slap in the face earlier this week um, that Will Smith hopped up. And I don't, I'm not even going to go into the whole story. You know, by this point, he hopped up and slapped Chris Rock because Chris Rock made a joke about his wife. And I'm not going to even get into Will Smith's personal life and his wife and all that stuff. The, the, here's what I've witnessed, though. The liberal side, or the progressive, I, would, I should say, right? The, the, the more Democrat side in this country, they have taken the perspective that Will Smith was justified in slapping Chris Rock because they said Will Smith was provoked by that joke. Okay? I'm just saying that is bullcrap. Um, he... Will Smith had no right to get up and slap what what's his name in the face? Chris Rock. No right to do that. Just because you were provoked by a joke. Now, part of that is because they were at a venue where they make jokes about the celebrities all the time. Like, that's just part of what they do. That's that's what used to make the Oscars fun to watch. You know, I don't know if they're going to be brave enough to do that anymore <laughs> now that you get slapped for it. But that's part of what makes it fun. You get up and roast each other. And the joke he made wasn't even that bad. Uh about Will Smith's wife. But anyway, so Will Smith says he was provoked and he got up and slapped him in the face. I, I think it was probably a publicity stunt. Um, there's a lot of like say, people saying that's conspiracy theory or something. Here's what I mean when I say publicity stunt. They I, At first I thought they probably planned it before. I'm not sure. I don't think they actually planned it because Will Smith has gotten into some hot water for all this. And like he resigned from the Academy and they're talking about taking his Oscar away because he also won an Oscar that night. Uh, so there's, I, I don't think that it was necessarily planned before, but I do think it was a publicity stunt in this way that when he hopped up there and did that, he was doing it to make a stunt to get people talking about it. I mean, that was why he did it. He wasn't actually mad. I don't think he was just hopping up to do something outrageous because Every year at the Oscars, they do something outrageous to try to get people to talk about it because no one's watching it anymore. Like, you know, I told you I stopped watching years ago. A lot of people have stopped watching years ago. Last year's Oscars were the lowest rated Oscars of all time. 
this year's were the second lowest rated Oscars of all time. So nobody's winning anymore. I mean, no one's watching anymore. No one cares. So they'll, they'll be watching next year because they're hoping another celebrity gets slapped. <laughs> you know what? If they promise to slap a celebrity at the Oscars, I'll go back to watching them every year. I'll, I want to see someone get slapped. But if they're not going to slap a celebrity, you know, that's the only reason that they are so excited about this is that people are actually talking about the fact that the Oscars happened. This is just a week of free publicity for them. So I think Will Smith did it as a publicity stunt. He's trying to get people talking about the Oscars when he hopped up there to do that. Like, here's the thing. If if Chris Rock had just made that joke and no one else was around, Will Smith wouldn't have slapped him, okay? He, he wouldn't have cared. They would have laughed it off. But since it's on TV and televised, he got up there and smacked him in the face and he thought people would probably laugh it off or be talking about it the next day and... People are going to watch the Oscars again now. That's that's what he's probably thinking. All the stars are doing all kinds of outrageous things to try to get attention at the Oscars. It's just what they do. They want to be in the spotlight. So anyway, I think it was a publicity stunt. Whether it was planned beforehand or not, I'm just thinking of it as a publicity stunt. It wouldn't have happened if there weren't cameras on, okay? Anyway, liberals want to say that Will Smith was justified in this. If we're going to take it seriously, that he was justified in slapping Chris Rock because of words, Okay. Because remember what I've been saying. Progressivism does not believe in free speech, okay? They believe that they have a right to shut down speech that they don't agree with, that they can deplatform you and silence you or slap you in the face. They believe that that's something they have a right to do because that is part of the fruit of progressivism. That was progressivism on display, slapping someone in the face because you don't like what they're saying. Progressives don't believe in free speech. You can't just slap someone because you were provoked. Their words are not violence. But striking someone is violence. Okay? See the difference there? Words are not violence. You can't say I was provoked into violence because you were violent with me first with your mouth. doesn't work that way, guys. uh, Vladimir Putin, he claims that he was provoked into attacking Ukraine. He said he was provoked by NATO. He said Ukraine's actions had provoked him into wanting to invade them. Okay? That's bullcrap. Everyone knows Putin is the bad guy. And Will Smith was the bad guy at the Oscars. All right. um, I got to talk about this. In the past week, there were hearings for Ketanji Brown-Jackson. She's the nominee that Joe Biden is trying to put on the Supreme Court. Okay. Actually, let's make this our What's Racist for this week. Uh, let's Let's make this our segment for that. Everything is racist. So Ketanji Brown-Jackson, she's a black woman. And as far as her qualifications go... That's all the Democrats care about. (laughs) They want to be the party who put the first black woman on the court, okay? And we could have had one already from George Bush, but back then when George Bush was president, Joe Biden and the other Democrats opposed her. So this is now the first one. To show how progressive they are, Democrats are proudly going back to hiring people on the basis of race, A, a practice that has been illegal in America since the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, okay? Unless you're in Washington, D.C., and then they can do it there. It's just fine. Black people are just a pawn to Democrats. When will black people wake up and realize this? Democrats don't do anything for you. You're just a pawn to them. If you started being more well-off, if you started making more more money and having an equal life to, to white people, as they say, then Democrats couldn't use you anymore. So they want to keep you poor. They don't want you to, to grow or benefit in life. They want you to stay in the ghettos and stay in poverty as much as possible because that's how you can be a pawn to them. 
They don't have they don't have an interest in helping you because if they actually helped you, they couldn't rely on your vote anymore. They want you to feel helpless. They want you to feel like they're the only people who can take care of you. It's a total scam. Black people are just a pawn to Democrats. Donald Trump did more for black people than Democrats have done in the past 50 years. He got black unemployment to its lowest rate, I think, ever. I think ever in America. He set a record in, in all the way up until 2019. It kept smashing through the record. 2019, black unemployment was at its best level ever. And then coronavirus happened and a lot of unemployment started up then. That ruined the record. But up until coronavirus, Donald Trump was taking better care of, of black people than Democrats ever have. Because black people are just pawns to Democrats. They don't really want to help you. They want you to stay pawns. They don't want you to be a rook or a knight or anything like that. Well, Hillary Clinton's shortlist for her cabinet members, it leaked. You know, this is back around the time of the 2016 election. It leaked on accident. <laughs> One of the spots on the cabinet, it just said, yet to be named black person. <laughs> she was, In other words, she was just going to make sure she put a black person on the cabinet. She didn't care who it was, what position it was. They just said, you know, yet to be named black person <laughs> to show how progressive they are. That's what Democrats think of black people. When Joe Biden was running for president, he promised to pick a black person as his vice president candidate, okay? Because they just see black people as pawns. If Barack Obama had not been a black man, you wouldn't even know his name. And that brings us to the Supreme Court here. So Republicans already have a black man on the court. They've already put multiple women on the court. They've already put a mother of black children on the court. But the Democrats this week, this past week, they wanted to pretend that Republicans are opposed to having a black woman on the court. And that's exactly why they picked her, so that then they could spend a few weeks pretending that any Republican who opposes her is just racist or sexist. So at first I was kind of like, the Republicans should just go ahead and vote her in. I mean, she's already getting in no matter what. Biden had the votes before he even nominated anyone. However, after watching her Capitol Hill questioning... I think she has shown herself to be abundantly unqualified for the Supreme Court. Okay, I'll play you a few clips here. The first one here you've probably already heard about. She was asked what a woman is. And this is that hilarious question that those on the political right they've been using lately, especially the commentator Matt Walsh, they've been asking this question because Democrats believe, uh, you know, they claim to believe all women, promote women. They claim that Republicans have a war on women. But Democrats don't know how to define woman. Now, I can. I'd say it's a biological human female. I can do it in three words. If we want to be technical, I think we usually use the word woman, you know, when someone's reached puberty. And after that, the you know, officially woman. But anyway, it's a simple understanding. I, I'm perfectly clear. Most people I know are totally clear on what a woman is. But Democrats have been so warped by this modern gender ideology and transgender insanity, they no longer have any way to define what a woman even is. So Katanji Brown-Jackson was asked this in her hearings. Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. So she's going to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court, but she doesn't even know what a woman is. 
Like she looked bewildered by that question. And and she was asked this multiple times in the hearings. So if she if she was caught off guard by such a simple question, she had plenty of time to think of an answer. The thing is, Democrats have no answer to this question. She was asked, how can you adjudicate on matters of sex and gender if you don't know what the difference in a man and a woman is? She had no answer. She doesn't even know what a woman is. She is disqualified. When, when, uh, when does life begin, in your opinion? Senator, um, I don't know. <laughs> Ma'am? I don't know. She said she doesn't know when life begins. But she's pro-abortion, right? <laughs> but she doesn't know when life begins. She said that Roe versus Wade is settled law, but she doesn't know when life begins. So if she doesn't know when life begins, why is she supporting a million babies a year being killed? Like, that's not logical. But her position's not rooted in logic. She has no moral philosophy. She doesn't even have, like as a lot of Republicans pointed out, she has no consistent legal philosophy. And she has no scientific knowledge on something that's a very basic, simple scientific fact about life beginning at conception. She doesn't know when life begins, though. So she's disqualified. But I've never studied critical race theory, and I've never used it. It doesn't come up in the work that I do as a judge. She said she doesn't know what critical race theory is. She said she has not studied it. Okay, And critical race theory, as we've been told, it's a complex legal theory. It's something that's just used in law, right? When, it, when public schools are accused of teaching critical race theory, the teachers unions come out and say, well, that's just a complex legal theory. We aren't even using it in classrooms. They say it's just something you learn about in law school. Critical race theory has been the most popular, most talked about legal theory in my entire lifetime. It's been constantly in the news of the past few years. But Katanji Brown-Jackson, who's supposed to be one of the top legal minds in the country, she says that she hasn't studied it. I think she's lying. Or, you know, she's lying under oath, by the way. I think she's lying. Or either that or she doesn't actually know what CRT is. Either way, I'd say she's disqualified. When she, Whether she lied under oath or whether she doesn't actually know what CRT is, she's disqualified. And I've never seen a candidate so thoroughly discredit herself before. Um, so I actually think the Republicans should vote against her, okay? And it won't work because they already have the votes for the Democrats, but I'm just saying that the, the Republicans shouldn't vote someone who's so completely unqualified for the highest court in the land. She does not deserve this position, okay? The Associated Press put out this amazing tweet about Katanji Brown-Jackson <laughs> during the hearings. Associated Press tweets out, Democrats praised President Joe Biden's choice of the Harvard-educated lawyer and appellate court judge as long overdue, making the judicial branch begin to look more like America. But Republicans argue that Jackson brings too much empathy to the job. <laughs> that's, that's how the fake news covered it, guys. That Republicans' problem with Katanji Brown-Jackson is that she brings too much empathy to the job. I think what that's referring to is how many child molesters and child... or. Uh, child porn users that she gave ex extremely extremely light sentences to. I think that's what they mean by empathy, that she considered the people looking at child porn to be victims and gave them light sentences so they could get out of prison early. Well, this is what happens when you do an affirmative action hire, okay? Joe Biden claimed he was only going to hire black female candidates 
to the position for Supreme Court justice. So he limited himself to a very small number of options for a SCOTUS pick. And whenever you do that, you can no longer claim you're just looking for the best and brightest, okay? You're not looking for the best and brightest in the land if you pick an incredibly small number of people. Black women are 6% of the population. You say, I'm only gonna look at 6% of the population as, as potential people I'd put on the Supreme Court. Well, whenever you limit yourself to such a small pool of candidates on, on an issue that's completely ir- irrelevant, their sex and their gender, that should be irrelevant to how they judge. This is how you fail when you do an aff- affirmative action hire. You get someone as completely unqualified like Katanji Brown-Jackson. And Joe Biden should have learned his lesson because he did that with his vice president pick. He said, I'm only going to pick a black woman as my vice president. D- didn't he pay attention to how bad that turned out? We also recognize, just as it has been in the United States for Jamaica, one of the issues that has been presented as an issue that is economic in the way of its impact has been the pandemic. So to that end, we are announcing today also that we will assist Jamaica in COVID recovery um, by assisting in terms of the recovery efforts in Jamaica that have been essential to, I believe, what is necessary to strengthen not only uh, the, the, the issue of public health, but also the economy. See, that's what happens when you pick someone on the basis of race or gender rather than skills. This is what Democrats give you, okay? Here's the question I'd love to ask a Democrat. I'd love to ask them. What is Kamala Harris good at? I, I, wanted, I know that Republicans could come up with some you know joke about her when I say that, but I want to know from a Democrat. What is Kamala Harris good at? Ask a Democrat that sometime. <laughs> like I want to what do they think that this woman is good at? <laughs> it's a follow-up question, and what is a woman? Okay, well, we've heard from everyone else today. Let's hear from President Biden now. So we established a new civil rights a new civil rights cause of action for those whose intimate images were shared on the public screen. How many times have you heard, I'll bet everybody knows somebody somewhere along the line, that in an intimate relationship, what happened was the guy takes a revealing picture of his naked friend or whatever in a compromising position, and then literally, in a sense, blackmails or mortifies that person, sends it out, put it online. What in the world was he even talking about? I'm like, you know, Bruce Willis someday, he can come out of retirement to play Joe Biden. (laughs) You know, eventually Hollywood's going to make a Joe Biden movie. Bruce Willis could come out to play him again. Because my goodness, you don't need to remember your lines to play Joe Biden, right? (laughs) You can just get up there and sputter and say whatever you want. The the movie is probably going to be about how the president led us into World War III. <laughs> and that's probably what it'll have to be about. And I I think I'd rather remember this time as having Bruce Willis lead us than whatever this man was talking about. I mean, my, my gosh. Okay. Once again, if you're offended by anything I said today, it's fierybutpeaceful at gmail.com. That's where you can send your hate mail. And if you want to stay in touch throughout the week, we're on Twitter at Fake News Weekly. I haven't been on Twitter much the past few weeks because, like I said, I've just been kind of feeling depleted, haven't been on there as much. But uh, I occasionally still tweet stuff out, so um, go check that out if you want to. If you like Bible studies or if you just really dig the sound of my voice, I do have another podcast. It's called Cross References. 
it generally has nothing to do with news or current events. Sometimes I talk about that, but generally um, it's just a Bible study podcast, and I consider it my main podcast. I try to put new episodes out on Mondays. Um, I didn't get one out quite on this week on Monday, but it was it's up now. So go check out Cross References on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get this podcast. You can probably find my other one. All right, before we go today, let's do a Beyond the Headline. So what I want to talk about today is not a headline. I want to talk about a book. William Barr had his autobiography released here in March. Uh, William Barr, in case you forgot, he was the attorney general under two different presidents. Uh, Most recently, Donald Trump, but he was also the attorney general for George H.W. Bush back in the early 90s. And so I love Bill Barr, William Barr. He's a principled man of integrity. He's one of the most knowledgeable and skilled lawyers that you can find. One of the things I really appreciate about him is that he is the same person behind closed doors that he is in front of the camera. I mean, he's exactly the same person. And I I love that about, there's some people who are like that. And I, I appreciate that. He just basically says things exactly as how they are with very little opinion thrown in. Even in his autobiography, he's just very factual, doesn't put in a whole lot of opinion. He's very good at describing things, but he's very factual in how he does it. I just love the way he talks, um, the way he just puts things so simply and clearly and doesn't try to be duplicitous in any way. So um, get I would if I encourage you to get his book, I'm not done with it yet. It's like 600 pages long, and I'm just a little bit less than 200 pages through it. So I have not got through the whole thing yet, but I do and I do encourage you to get the book. I'm not going to say the name of it because my mother-in-law listens to this podcast sometimes and I don't want her to beat me up for cussing. So you can Google it if you want. <laughs> the book is called, uh, okay, it's called One Darn Thing After Another. You can try to figure out what word I changed. But like I said, the book, I'm a little less than 200 pages into it. I'm just now getting to the Trump part of the book. Everything so far has been about his early life mostly his career under George H.W. Bush. And um, I did not buy the book to learn about George H.W. Bush. Uh, I even considered skipping that section at first and just getting to the Trump stuff because I thought that would be, uh, I was a little more interested in in reading about that. But I am so glad now that I didn't skip the early part of the book because I learned some really fascinating information about George H.W. Bush's presidency. I'll just call him H.W. I was a baby whenever he was president. I was born during his presidency, so I don't remember, you know, him being president at all. Uh, He was only a one-term president for four years. But anyway, I like him quite a bit now after reading this this book. Um, It kind of helps me to understand who H.W. was, what his his plans were, how they were really cut short by being a one-term president. But then Bush Jr., I think, followed through on some of them. Uh, To put all this in context, so... H.W., he was the president between Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Okay, Jimmy Carter had been president in the 70s, and he was way unpopular. And that led to a massive Republican victory by Ronald Reagan in 1980. And then Ronald Reagan was reelected very easily in 1984. Reagan won 489 electoral votes in 1980, and he got 525 in 1984. And there's only 538 electoral votes available. (laughs) So as you can imagine, this was a massive victory. Okay, the races like today, much, much closer than they were back then. Um, 
Reagan's vice president was George H.W. Bush. So he ran in 1988, and he won very highly, too. He won with 426 electoral votes. Huge win. And he had incredibly high approval ratings throughout his presidency. He oversaw a military conflict in Kuwait in the early 90s. It was called Operation Desert Storm. And it was technically, it was a war. Um, This was to stop Saddam Hussein. He was trying to steal a bunch of the oil in Kuwait. And George H.W. Bush decided to try to get congressional approval on the war. And he didn't even have to do this. Um, William Barr encouraged him to, though. He said this would make it more, it would give more legitimacy to the conflict if he got Congress's approval. And and it was a little bit of a risk to try to go to Congress for approval on this war because, the, uh, so the, the, the Democrats controlled the Senate and they had to vote on a declaration of war. And... About 10 Democrats flipped over to voting in favor of the war, but it was still a close vote. It was like, I don't know, 52, 58. It was like 52 to 48 uh, in favor of the war. So it narrowly passed. It was only because some of the Democrats flipped. But mostly, for the most part, the Democrats tried to stop this war. And that, that war operation, it turned out to be a massive success. Okay, More than 20,000 Iraqi soldiers died in the conflict. And it's unclear how many of them actually died. Some estimates have it double that. But at least 20,000 Iraqi soldiers died in the conflict, and they were driven out of Kuwait, okay? More than 20,000. Do you want to know how many Americans died in this conflict? Less than 150, okay? They lost at least 20,000. We lost 150. That is a huge success. And, And there were a group of Democrats in the Senate who tried to stop it? Who tried to let Saddam Hussein steal an oil-rich country and make himself more powerful? And a bunch of Democrats in the Senate were just happy to let that happen. We were able to stop that, losing less than 150 men, and delivered a huge black eye to Iraq. So Bush ended that conflict with a massive 89% approval rating. He was on track to win re-election. That was in like 1991, okay? Early 90s. This was in like 1991, that Operation Desert Storm happened. From there to the election, there were about 18 months to go until that election in 1992. And during that 18 months, the media launched into an all-out assault on George H.W. Bush. There were a few big avenues of attack that they used, okay? For one thing, during that time of the the military conflict, there was an eight-month economic recession, The media freaked out about that recession. And the recession ended in 1991. Things turned around after that. However, from then until the election happened, the media constantly, relentlessly talked about how Bush was screwing up the economy up until the day of the 1992 election. From then until the 92 election, more than 90% of the economic news in the newspapers, it was negative about the economy. Despite the fact that I think for 17 months straight, right up until the 1992 election in November, the economy grew. It grew for 18 months, 17 or 18 months straight, right up until the day of the election. And, but more than 90% of the news coverage was negative. Then in the month of November, when the election happened, right after the election happened at the beginning of November, for that month in November of 1992, then only 14% of the economic coverage was negative turned on a dime. Why was that? 
Well, the media had done their job. They had torn Bush down. Then there was this other fake news story. It was that George H.W. Bush, that he was so elitist and out of touch that he didn't even know what grocery store scanners were. Now, let me give you the real story first. So George Bush, he was visiting an electronics expo, and one of the exhibitors was giving a demonstration of their new grocery store scanners. And they said these scanners are so advanced, they could read a barcode, even if the barcode tag had been ripped off, like torn. If there was a little bit of it there, they could still read the barcode. This was like a new technology. They showed this to George Bush, and George Bush comments on it with all the cameras on him. He said it was amazing. And that he was remarking on how the scanner could read even a ripped barcode. Well, the media took this story and they reported it as if George Bush had never seen a supermarket scanner before and that he was amazed at this piece of basic technology. The New York Times headline the next day, this is what the New York Times headline puts out. Bush encounters the supermarket, amazed. It said in the article, as President Bush travels the country in search of re-election, he seems unable to escape a central problem. This career politician, who has lived the cloistered life of a top Washington bureaucrat for decades, is having trouble presenting himself to the electorate as a man in touch with middle-class life. And then it describes an interaction at the exhibit of the National Grocers Convention, and the reporter explained that Bush grabbed a quarter of milk, a light bulb, and a bag of candy, and then he ran them over the electronic scanner. And it says, a look of wonder flickered across his face as he saw the item and the price registered on the cash register screen. It says he told grocers later that he was amazed by some of the te technology. Um, they left out the point of the demonstration, <laughs> that it was, it was showing off a new type of scanner, they totally left that out and they just pretended that Bush didn't even know what a grocery store scanner was. And it frames the story of how Bush has all these troubles of relating to the common man. Well, only if the common man reads the New York Times, <laughs> because apparently they've been fake news since I was a baby. <laughs> but they got what they wanted. They tore Bush down and they made him a one-term president. And then a third way that the media lied, it was with something called uh, Iraq Gate. Okay. Remember how I said that Bush ran Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait? He had Operation Desert Storm. Well, then this scandal erupts. And it says that, um, well, the Democrats claimed, I should say, that Bush had just arranged this whole conflict because he actually wanted to sell military supplies to Iraq. They said that he tried to divert a billion dollars to Iraq so that he could use it to buy military equipment or that Saddam Hussein could buy military equipment. Anyway, it was a total lie. This was like the Russia gate of the early 90s, okay? Remember how Democrats claimed that Trump colluded with the Russians and there was this big conspiracy theory for, for years. They investigated Trump and tried to prove that he was in this conspiracy with the Russian government. And then the Russia investigative report came out and it said there was no conspiracy. Same thing with this, okay? The Democrats and the media, they claimed for years that Bush was in this secret plot with a foreign dictator and it all turned out to be baloney. Except when there was an investigation into Bush's scandal, unfortunately, that report, it did not come out until June of 1993, six months after the election. It came out from the Department of Justice under Bill Clinton, who, who was, um, his AG was Janet Reno at that time. And she released a report and said, 
We did not find evidence that U.S. agencies or officials illegally armed Iraq. I found no evidence of corruption or incompetence. Okay, so the whole Iraq gate thing, it was all a lie. But the truth didn't come out until after the election was over. The fake news and the Democrats didn't care, though, because they had already got what they wanted. They got Bush out of office. And then the last thing, this was the Democrats' October surprise. So on Friday, October 30th of 1992, this was four days before the election. And at that point, there was considered to be about a 1% difference in the polls. So a very close race. At that time, the investigator who was looking into Iraq Gate, his name was Lawrence Walsh, he dropped a huge fake news football onto the field, and the fake news picked it up and ran with it for a couple days, all they needed to do until the election happened. So Walsh, what he did was he indicted the Secretary of Defense under George Bush, George H.W. Bush, he indicted him for not turning over a diary when he had been questioned about it. And this investigator, Lawrence Walsh, he implied falsely in his indictment that the, that the diary had something to do with covering for George Bush. Now, this whole thing was, this indictment ended up going nowhere. It, the diary entry, whatever, it had nothing to do with George H.W. Bush. There was no reason to mention Bush in the indictment. It was all an implication that turned out to be false. And the investigator was never able to find out actual dirt on Bush. So instead, he just decides to try to ruin Bush's chances of re-election by dropping this spurious indictment just a few days before the election actually happened. The media ran with that ball for a few days. They dropped it as soon as the election was over, as soon as they got what they wanted. So I guess I'm just sharing all this to point out that the news media has been in the pocket of the Democrats for decades. They skewered George H.W. Bush for over a year over things that were complete non-issues, things that were total lies and fabrications. But meanwhile, up to today, they won't even look into allegations about Hunter Biden. They ignore the fact that our president of the United States is a dementia patient. He walks like a turtle. They don't care about their own credibility. All they will do is repeat and repeat and repeat whatever false stories they need to. They'll do it for years, whatever it takes, to swing an election for the Democrats. But I would also say this. Hey, look what they got out of it. <laughs> they got Bill Clinton. They got Joe Biden. Two of the biggest embarrassments that the Democrats have ever had. I mean... I, I make fun of President Biden for being old and senile, but let's make one thing clear. He's not failing so bad because he's senile. He's failing because his policies don't work. His ideas don't work. Democrat ideology doesn't work. It's not sustainable. They don't understand foreign policy. I mean, they try, but it just doesn't work. Barack Obama had the slowest economic recovery since World War II. He lit the Middle East on fire. He let ISIS blow up. And, and Barack Obama claimed that he couldn't do anything about it. Then Trump became president. Trump had them cleared out within a year. Obama and Biden both have let Russia invade Ukraine under their presidencies. That did not happen under Trump. Now, I'm not saying Trump was some saint. I mean, believe me, I do not think that. But at least he had good ideas. His ideas worked. The economy boomed. He got peace deals in the Middle East. Russia stayed in Russia. These are facts. I mean, don't bother sending me your opinion on that because your opinion doesn't matter. Those are the facts. When Trump was president, Russia stayed in Russia. Trump's flaws 
were really more centered around his character, but not his ideas. Trump's ideas were good, and George H.W. Bush's ideas were good. Clinton and Obama and Biden's ideas are bad. So our foreign policy goes up and down. Our economy goes up and down. The only thing that stays the same is that the media has been lying all the way through. Thanks for listening to Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, if you hear that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, that's just fake news. Fake news.